in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from John, or excuse me, from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the lights that all might believe through him. He was not the lights, but he came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will or the f- uh, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. As Dan comes, I pray that you would anoint his mouth, that you would anoint the words that he preaches to us, that he shares with us, and that God, ultimately, that you would receive glory that is due you through hearts and lives further surrendered to you. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'll just tell you something funny before we begin. I've had dreams that I've come up to preach somewhere and I forgot my notes. And they're not here. And I don't have notes. And I don't know where they are. So I'm sitting down there and I'm like, after my last, the last sermon, did I take my Bible somewhere? Did I put it somewhere? Or is it under here? I don't know. I don't remember. So I was like, the whole time I'm sitting there, Lord, I hope those notes are down there. Otherwise, I'm in trouble. Well, my name is Dan Morris. I'm really happy and excited uh, to be with you guys here this morning. Um, Who here, let me ask, who here uh, first read the Gospel of John when you came to faith in Jesus Christ? Who who was it? The the first, yeah, the first book? Yeah, when I came to faith in Jesus, it was the first book that was recommended that I read. And so I read the Gospel of John, and I was told to read the Gospel, uh, or the chapter 3, three times, and then come back and read the full Gospel of John. And so it was the first book that I read, so I'm pretty excited about this because this was really integral uh, in my spiritual development, especially when I first came to faith. And uh, and so today we're going to be covering a lot of ground. We're going to be covering what's called John's prologue, which is really him setting the stage as to what the Gospel of John is all about. But before we uh, move into that, let's pray together, okay? Father, I just want to thank you, uh, Lord, for today. I thank you for this moment where your word can be proclaimed and your people can hear it and you can do your work. And so, Lord, today we look forward 
to what you're going to do and changing hearts and changing minds. And Lord, and we do pray, Father, that when we leave here, that we'd be changed and we'd become more like Jesus, the author, finisher, and perfecter of our faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to start by asking another big question. Have you ever contemplated what is the meaning of life? I think we all have, haven't we? We've all kind of contemplated that question, like, what does life mean? What is this all about? And there's all the other little questions that come with it, like, who am I, and why am I here, and if there's some God out there, what am I to believe about him? Like, who is he, and, and how am I to interact with him? And, and then truly, what is ultimately the meaning to all of life? into uh, everything that we see and everything that we look up in the sky and in the heaven. And what is this all about, right? Well, I think John is going to help us with that. John's goal is to answer some of these questions for us. And John writes his gospel very differently, though, than the other three. And this needs to be recognized because uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see a gradual building up from the ground up. You'll see from the beginning of the life of Christ until the culmination of his death, burial, and resurrection. And so it, these are all historical narratives and literary genre, but you can see that there's a difference. But with the synoptic gospels, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're written very similarly. A lot of the same stories, a lot of the same literary typing, a lot of the same verbiage, but John is very different. John is, is uh, written from the top down. It's written from the point of eternity down. And right away, John is going to try to let us know who Jesus is. And so in Matthew, it starts with the genealogy of Christ and is written more to the Jewish people. There are a lot of passages referring to the Old Testament where Jewish people would have understood this writing of Matthew. So the Gospel of Matthew is more written towards the Jews. And this is very purposeful, by the way, because there's different people group that we're going to hear this. The Gospel of Mark begins with the baptism of Christ in his early ministry. It's generally believed to be the first gospel uh, written, and, uh, and it uses fewer and fewer Old Testament references. It's got a lot of Gentile-type language in it. And the Gospel of Luke starts out with the birth of Jesus. That's where we go every Christmas. When we want to hear the Christmas story, we go to Luke chapter 2. And it's written to a specific person named Theophilus, and it's, got a, it's written in a more historical uh, point of view. But the Gospel of John is very, very different. It's uh, believed that it was the last gospel written uh, somewhere in between 60 and 90 A.D. Scholars aren't really sure of that. But right out of the gate, John wants us to know that Jesus is divine. Right from the beginning, he's very concerned that the readers and hearers of this gospel understand who Jesus is and why he came. And that it's our faith in him and believing in him as Lord is what gives us life. As a matter of fact, John tells us in, ver in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, exactly why he wrote this letter. So he says, starting in verse 10, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is very important to John. Now, we almost have to keep one eye on this, on this passage here, understanding this is the purpose and the theme of this book. This is why John is writing it. 
As a matter of fact, he uses the word believe 98 times in this gospel because it's so important that we understand who Jesus is and that we believe in him in a biblical sense, not just an intellectual sense, but in a biblical sense, meaning we surrender to him, we trust in him, we put our faith in him. It's very important. So please, as we, as we walk through this together, please understand what John is trying to do. He's trying to lead us into a deep, meaningful, powerful, intimate, personal relationship with the God of the universe, with Jesus Christ himself, now and forevermore. So let's start. You guys ready? John chapter 1, verse 1. Let's get there. All right. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Does anybody see any text here that might be familiar to you? In the beginning? In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is done very purposefully by John. You have to understand, when he writes this, he's writing these words to a Jewish hearer, and because it was very, it was very um, evident that he was calling out the creation story. So when, when you would, if you were a Jewish person and you heard in the beginning, your mind would immediately go to Genesis 1.1. And then it would, it, would, it would follow in the creation account. So what, what John is doing here by saying that in the beginning was the Word, he's connecting the Word to Genesis 1.1. He's connecting the Word to creation. That's very, very important in this text. John is saying that the Word was present when the cosmos was created. When everything was created, the Word was there. The Word was part of that. So why doesn't, why doesn't John just say in the beginning was Jesus? It's because of this. It's because he's talking to different people who would understand this completely differently. He's talking to Jews and Gentiles, and, and they understood these words completely differently, and their context and the way that they viewed a deity was completely different. But John, in this masterful piece of written artistry, really inspired by the Holy Spirit, is doing something very, very beautiful here. It's brilliant because what he's doing, he's answering all the philosophical, all the intellectual, all the theological questions that they were grappling with at this time. Let's define a couple words here before we go any further, okay? Because in the beginning was the word. What was the word? The word was the logos in Greek. The word of God. It means supreme meaning, reason, or logic for all things. And then God, or theos, theos, supreme or ultimate being or God. So they would have understood a Greek God and a Jewish God looked different, um, so they would have totally redefined these words. But in verse 2, what's really cool is that John, it says that the logos is a he. So he's bringing humanness to the logos. When everybody's thinking about like what the logos is, as the supreme meaning or ultimate meaning or logic, which is, by the way, where we get our word logic is from logos. When they're trying to figure that out, what is the meaning to life? This, these words come up. These words come up and they have a different meaning, but here John is giving it a humanness. And understand that this is, to a Jewish mind, this is very radical, right? Because they believe in a monotheistic uh, faith system. They believe that God is one. And so if you now introduce a human nature or a human person into the Godhead or into their God, they would say now that God is two. But John does something here that is beautifully simple and yet deeply complex. When he said the word was with, or the word was God, he still holds to the monotheistic view of Judaism, 
Yet he promotes the father-son relationship in the Godhead as what we know as part of the Trinity. So John is making all of these connections. And I can just see these guys, like their minds are just blowing at this time, just blowing up. Both Hebrew and Greek philosophers and theologians at this time, by the way, they all explored the logos. This was not an uncommon term. So when you see in, in the beginning was the word or the logos, this is not an uncommon term for them. They're, everybody was exploring the logos. As a matter of fact, today we still explore the logos. We still you know, are exploring what's the meaning to life. We have the answer to that, but many people don't. And so they're continuing to explore what the logos is in their lives. So for the contemporaries, though, of that time, Jewish philosopher Philo, the Logos, was the word of God, as written in the Torah, and referred mostly to God's work in the world. So when God spoke something into existence, when God spoke something into creation, when God commanded something to be done, that was the Logos. He could point to that and say, that's the Logos, that's the meaning of life. That's the meaning to life. But Philo believed that the Bible was largely allegorical, that it was just a, a bunch of stories and so think of his disciples when all of a sudden John is putting flesh on it. John's saying, no, it's not just a bunch of stories. It's not just an idea or a concept or some kind of esoteric idea. No, what he's saying is that the logos is flesh and blood. And he gets into that even further as we go along. So there were two other really prevalent strains of Greek thought and philosophy at that time. One was called Epicureanism and one was called Stoicism. And this was big back then. And this is what he was dealing with. So from a Greek perspective, they both considered the logos as the meaning or reason for life. However, Epicurean philosophy was more pursuing hedonism, pleasure. I'm, I just really am about myself. I just want to enjoy life. It's the eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of mentality. That's what Epicurean philosophy was all about. So their logos was about pursuing pleasure and hedonism, whereas Stoicism was more... It was about the tranquility and the peace of life and finding purpose and meaning, like meaning outside of yourself. And so they had these battling ideas as to what the logos looked like. And you see, both, both if they've read this, would have rocked their world. Because this is completely foreign to them. It's completely different than anything they've ever heard. And, and, and so what John is doing here is blowing up every possible Jewish and Gentile paradigm. And you can imagine in regards to what the logos was. He was breaking down all their philosophical ideas, all of their intellectual constructs, and replacing them with the person of Jesus. It's a big deal. So John, John just writes this, this piece of art and clarifies to both the Jewish and the Greek mind back then that the Logos wasn't just an abstract idea or thought from God, but that it was, the Logos was pre-existent. It existed outside of the time continuum, and before anything was, Jesus existed. So I want to, I want to quote from an early church father, uh, Athanasios, who said, there never was when he was not. I like that. I actually like this other one, maybe even a little better. One author, unknown author, puts it this way. There never was when he wasn't wasing, he always was. <laughs> Talking about Jesus. I'll say it again. There never was when he wasn't wasing. He always was. I just think that's, that sums it all up in the way that we can view Jesus. So look at what that brings us in verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Notice here how John is making the logos personal. He's beginning to bring the logos to us in this written text, that in him is life. And his life is the light of men. It's the light in us. 
John is answering basic, basically three things here. Where the true meaning of life is, it's found in Jesus. And that Jesus is the self-existent creator and sustainer of all of life. And this is the part that really struck me, is that the dark forces in the world have no power to overcome the light. And I've been thinking about that, like how sometimes we'll, we'll fall into this thing like, well, the devil made me do it. You know, there's this thing like I'm not responsible because there's all these, these outside dark forces and these evil forces that are pressing against me in my own life. All these temptations that come my way and all these things I know that I shouldn't do, I continue to do. And, and, and like we don't have any power over it and we just kind of capitulate to it. And here John is saying that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness that overcomes, that's the same light that's in us. That's the same power that's in us. That's the same life of Christ and the light of Christ that's in us, that shines in us, that, that illuminates our souls, that gives us the power to resist the dark forces, to fight against the dark forces. We have that power. So we, don't have, we, can't, we can't excuse ourselves like the devil has no power over us other than what we give him. He's got no power over us. Listen, Jesus was, Jesus is, and Jesus will always be. And he will always present this power. He's, all, you know, he's, he's, he's in the cosmos. He's holding everything together, right? He's got so much power. He's omnipotent. He's got so much power, and he gives us this light and this life so that we don't have to struggle with these things. He says in John, in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Do you understand what power that is? Do you, do you understand that greater is he, that's Jesus Christ, if you're a child of God, if you've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit because you've been born in the Spirit of God, you have the Spirit of God in you. Greater is he that is in you, that's Jesus, that he that is in the world, the darkness, the dark forces. You have power over that. Can I get an amen? amen. That's pretty cool. That's pretty awesome that God would give us that kind of power. So the devil's got no power over us. None whatsoever. I hope you understand that. I hope that when you, that temptation comes your way or when you start to struggle in your life with a certain issue, and maybe it's a reoccurring issue in there, and you feel the tap of that sin, that sin that you're entangled with that keeps tapping you on the shoulder, you don't have to give in to it. You have the power of the resurrected Jesus living in you. He's given you the power to resist that temptation. He's given you the power to live and to have life and life abundantly. You don't have to follow those desires. The darkness has no power over you. Praise the Lord. Listen to how this is said from Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. He was eternal. And in him, all things hold together. So Jesus created it. He has power over it. He rules over it. He's got dominion over all of creation. That's who Jesus is. And I love this in verse 17 when he says, In him, all things hold together. It comes from the Greek word synestemi, which means to stand next to. And I think about like Jesus standing next to all of creation. Like Jesus standing next to the galaxies and the stars and the planets and all of it and billions and billions of light years. He stands next to everything that's ever existed in all of eternity. That's how powerful Jesus is. He stands next to it and he, he controls it and he keeps it held together. That's our God. That's our Jesus. 
That's the Jesus who wants to have an intimate, personal relationship with you and me. The creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things. He holds it all together. So when Jesus comes to you and says, hey, you, you're weary, you're heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. He's saying, come to me, I can hold you together. I can hold your life together. I got you. I love you. If I can hold the stars and the moon in place and I can hold all the, every subatomic particle in, in place and all the atoms and molecules in place and, and direct their path and all of I can hold you. I can take care of you. I love you. You're my child. Jesus is so beautiful. He's just so beautiful in all of this. So not only is Jesus the creator of all things, he's the sustainer of all things. He's the one who holds everything together. So when I ask what the meaning of life is, the meaning of life is Jesus. It's, it's that, that, you know, the age-old, like, nursery question. You know, you ask the kids a question. They, Jesus, you know. Yeah, that's it. That's it. It's simple, but it's beautiful and it's true. He's the meaning to all of life. He is sovereign over all of creation. He's sovereign over us so we can rest in him. We can rest in him. John the Baptist knew this, as he pointed out, starting in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. See, John the Baptist was this forerunner, this messenger who was proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. So this is John's message, like, like John saying, the Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. The Logos is moving towards mankind. He's about to invade us, invade our world, and invade our lives. Beautifully so. Jesus was coming to seek and save lost people. He was coming to pursue broken people and broken sinners. And people who are just a mess in their lives. Jesus is coming for you. Jesus loves you and he's coming to rescue you. That's what this is all about. So if you're sitting here as a follower of Jesus Christ... I hate to tell you this, but it's not because you're awesome. It's not your awesomeness. Like, God's like, oh, that person's just so awesome. I, I just, I have no choice but to adopt them into my family. No, they're just awesome. No, no, no. It's because God is awesome. It's because Jesus is awesome. It's because he left the throne room of heaven in his divine pursuit of you and me. That's what Jesus came for. That's why the, the Logos, the Logos became flesh. That's why he came for us. He came to rescue us and to give our lives eternal hope, eternal joy. Enjoy in this moment. Even with all the messiness of life, this isn't just about heaven. This is about here and now. When you're born of God, when you're born again, your new life begins today. Your new life begins the moment you say yes to Jesus and you are born in the spirit of God. That's when your new life begins. That's when your eternal life begins. It's not when you die and go to heaven. It's in that moment. This offer is for everyone who might believe. Let's look at verse 10, starting in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, that's the Jewish people, and his own did not receive him. They rejected him. But to all, Jews, Gentiles, you and me, who did receive him, he, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of the man, 
but of God. There's some pretty deep stuff in this text here. There's some pretty significant stuff happening here. And I just want to point out some of it. Because I can't tell you how often that I'm talking to someone about God and, and, and bring up Jesus and, and we need to receive Jesus or accept Christ or need to be born again, born of the Spirit of God, where people say, well, we're all children of God. I, everybody's a child of God. Like there's this, this fluffy view of like mankind against the holy God that we're all just his children. We're all just children, children of God. And just because we're made in the image of Mago Dei, just because we're made in the image of God, doesn't mean we're all children of God. There should be a distinction there, and you should understand that theologically. And in the Bible, we need to be adopted into his family. This, this, this is very clear that if you haven't received Jesus Christ, you are not a child of God. You have not been given the right to become a child of God. I have this thing where I do, like, I'll look at this text, and I'll, I'll look at the flip side of it. Okay, well, what does that mean if you haven't received Christ? What does that mean if you haven't become born of God? What does that, that means you're, you're not one of his children. And as we get into the Gospel of John further, in chapter 8, verses 44, talks about our father being the devil until we come to faith in Christ and that we're adopted into his family. Very, very serious language there. And John, John is, is being very clear here. If you've received Christ, if you receive him, if you believe in his name, you have the right to become a child of God. That's very, very important that we know there. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, if you're not with me, you're against me. You, 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 know, you can't just say, I'm a child of God and, and, and live your life however you want and not come to Christ in faith and not believe in him and not trust in him and not be born of him and just say, hey, I'm a child of God, I'm good to go. That's, that's not true. That's not what the Bible is saying here. This is so important for us in, our, in the way that we speak to others, that we let them know that no, 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 the Bible doesn't say that. We're not all children of God. You need to be born of God. Let me give you the good news. Here's the way for you to do that. Trust in Jesus Christ. He is the light of men. He's the life of men. He will give you a new life. He will give you a new birth. He will give you a new name. He will give you a new identity. Because God is good. And he wants that for his people. He wants that for all of us. So here comes John's big crescendo in the prologue here, starting in verse 14, where it just really gets good. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this word, the Logos, now becomes a man. The Logos puts on flesh and dwells among us. He walks up and down the road next to us. This is, this is crazy talk. <laughs> God became a man. The incarnation has happened right here. He tells us all about it. That the glory of God, the glory is the, from the only Son of the Father, the glory is now residing not in a tent or in a tabernacle or, or, or in a temple. It's residing in the person of Jesus. When we see Jesus, we see all the glory of God on display. You see Jesus, you meet Jesus. If you've met Jesus, if you've been born again by the Spirit of Jesus, you have seen the glory of God. You have partaken of the glory of God. Because Jesus, all the glory, all the fullness of God reside in the person of Jesus. He has become 100% human and he's 100% God. And it's called the hypostatic union. It is a divine mystery and how that all works out. But we know that Jesus never let go of his deity. 
He was always God. John makes that clear here, and yet he was man. Listen to what Hebrews 4.15 says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. So in his manhood, he experienced temptation. He experienced the, the struggles of this world. He experienced the struggles of what it looks like to be a man, to be a person, a human person. He experienced it all, yet he was without sin. He was still the blameless, spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this, this is very powerful for us also to understand so that even though Jesus was born of the baby uh, as a baby of Mary he was the creator of all things even though he had to grow in wisdom and stature he was all-knowing and all-powerful though he slept on a rocking boat he was capable of calming all the storms though Jesus got hungry he was the bread of life though Jesus got thirsty he was the living water even though he wept when Lazarus died, he contained the power to raise him from the dead. Though his soul was crushed when he stepped and stooped into Gethsemane, he remained the Prince of Peace. And even though he died on the cross, he remains the resurrection and the life. And though Jesus ascended into heaven, he promises to be with us here at all times, until the end of the ages. This is our Jesus this is God incarnate. This is the Logos with flesh who is calling you into a deep, meaningful, powerful, intimate relationship with himself, the creator and sustainer of all of life and of all things. It's beautiful. And because of this, all things were about to become new. And in, in verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from the fullness we have all received grace upon grace. I need to stop right there. Think about this. Like, I could read, when I read this, and I just think John might be going, it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Like, there's buckets, buckets of overflowing grace that is just pouring out from Jesus, like he brought grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, like never ending grace, like the well never runs dry. Grace is abounding in all things that no matter if you struggle with sin and your sin is big, grace is bigger. Grace is bigger. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so you can't out sin, you can't outdo the grace of God the goodness of God, the mercy of God is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And that should lead us into a deeper, more meaningful, more loving relationship that no matter how many mistakes I made, no matter how I fall short, God is there to pick me up. His grace is sufficient for me. His grace is there to say, it's okay, son. It's okay, daughter. I know you messed up, but I am here for you. And I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I will never give up on you. No matter how bad your mistake is, I am next to you. I'm standing next to you. I'm synestemi standing next to you. And I will bring you, I'll put you back together. That's God. And I love how he says that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Starting in verse 17 and 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So 
You look at the law and you're like, isn't the law truth? Yeah, the, the law is truth. It's holy. It, there's, it's beautiful. And it points us to the ultimate truth, though. The, the, the truth of the law points us to the capital T truth in Jesus. Because none of us can stand underneath the weight of the law. So he's making this huge distinction between Moses, who these, these Jewish people would have followed in all their religious ritualism and all of their, their ordinances and in, in, in all of their, their law. And he's saying, but something better has come and his name is Jesus. And he will lead you into all grace and all truth. And that God has been made known through the person of Jesus. Grace has been seen. Grace has been known. Grace has been experienced in the work of Christ. See, the law had the power to show us our unrighteousness, but it never had the power to bring us righteous, to make us righteous. Never had the power to do it. Just had the power to show us our unrighteousness. So the law of God is valuable, and it's good, and we shouldn't run from it. But it is the sledgehammer that God uses to help us to see our brokenness. It is the wall that we crash into and we, we bust into shards and we just keep crashing into that wall and pieces of us just start peeling off, peeling off before we say, who's going to fix this? You look around and there's just brokenness all around you. There's shards all over the place. Who's going to fix this? I can't fix this. Jesus can fix that. Jesus can pick up the pieces and put it back together again. Jesus can make you whole. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. It's in him that we have life and have it abundantly. So it's him that can pick us up and put us back together. See, the law points out our flaws and shows us that we're all lawbreakers, but it's incapable of appeasing God with our attempts at morality. I'm going to be good today. No, you're not. <laughs> so we needed God to take on flesh so that he could take on our sins so that we could take on his perfect righteousness. It's called double imputation. He imputes to us his righteousness while we impute to him our sin. He who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Us, we get his righteousness while he takes our sin. Can you believe that? That's grace. That's mercy. That's God in all of his splendor. So it is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that proves that life, that Jesus is the life-giving logos. Listen, the law shows us that we are far, far, far worse than we think we are. But grace that is found in the gospel demonstrates that we are way more loved than we could ever imagine. This is a beautiful, beautiful truth. So if the band could come up as we begin to close. Uh, we're getting ready to, to celebrate Good Friday, Easter. And it really is, to me, a, a beautiful remembrance as to what Jesus has done on the cross and giving his life for us, and absorbing the wrath of God for us, and taking on the sin debt that we could, never, we could never pay. We could never, I mean, we get life that we don't deserve because he took on sin that he doesn't deserve. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. But there's three words that Jesus says on the cross that just blow me away. Every time I read them, every time I can contemplate them, there's three words. You know what they are? It is finished. To tell us die. It is finished. Your debt has been paid in full. I have made all things new. That's what Jesus is coming to do. He's came to make all things new. 
The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us to make all things new so that he could climb up on that tree and joyfully give his life for you and me. That's the beauty of our king. That's the beauty of our savior. So he paid a debt we owe so we could experience a life we don't deserve. And so we celebrate and we rejoice. And we come back to this this, um, verse in chapter 20, verses 31. Well, the Apostle John wrote, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you have life in the name of Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Listen, Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. Jesus is the eternal one. Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all of life. Jesus is the word of God and he's the living word. He is the head of all things because Jesus is God Almighty. And as we read today, Jesus came in the flesh for you and for me. And guess what? He's coming again. He's coming again. Praise the Lord. There's nothing more than his great love and affection for us that caused him to come and do what he did so that we could experience life, life, eternal life, life forever, peace with God. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So my question to you today is have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you been just religious? Have you gone to church your whole life and has never really crossed that line of faith and said, you know, I, I do want to follow Jesus. I do want forgiveness. I do want eternal life. I do want eternal joy. I do want eternal hope. I do want all of that. But I don't know how to do that. I've never done this before. I've never experienced anything like this before. Largely my Religious upbringing has been up here. I've been, I know God. I know of him, but I don't know him. I know who he is because I've been taught who he is, but I've never experienced him. I've never loved him in my soul. I've never said yes to him in that way. And so today, I want you to pray with me. I'm going to put a prayer up. And I know we don't do this often here. There's nothing magical about this prayer. This prayer isn't what saves anybody. It's that God is tapping on you. God is drawing you to himself and and, and he is saving you. He is calling you out and he's saying, I, you are mine. I love you. You are mine. And this is a way for us just to respond to him and just say, yes. Yes, I am yours. And I want to walk with you and I want to be for, I want to feel your forgiveness and I want to experience the life that you have for me. So you don't have to bow your heads. Just read this and we'll read it together. And if you pray this prayer, please come and talk to me afterwards. Please just come talk to me and say, hey man, I did it. Prayed the prayer. And I want to help you to grow. I want to help you to experience Christ in a deeper, more meaningful way. And I know all the pastors and elders here, that's, that's what we want for you. We want you to know how loved you are and how the experience that you can have with Jesus Christ can be so meaningful and so thick in your lives. 
Dear Jesus, today I acknowledge that you are God. I know right now that you are leading me into a relationship with you that I desire. Thank you for coming in the flesh to die for my sins and rising from the dead so that I could have life. I place my trust in you, Jesus, now and forever as my Lord, my Savior, and my only hope. Thank you for forgiving me through faith in you. Help me to follow you and grow as your child from this day forward. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. I want to share one more little piece of scripture with you. Because no pastor really has the power to proclaim that you're a child of God. But God has the power to proclaim that you're a child of God. In Romans 8, 16, it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Please examine your faith. Please examine to make sure that you're in the faith. Please examine and make sure that God's Spirit has told you, yes, yes, you're my child. Yes, you're my child. You're my beloved. And rejoice and celebrate the goodness of God. Let's sing. Amen? Let's sing.